following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Did you hear about the crazy housewarming gift that Nigel was given? It was a parrot. A parrot. This parrot had a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every word out of this bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. And Nigel and Serena are trying their best to just, uh, you know, change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, saying in that sweet Kiwi accent, playing soft music, and anything else they could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. But nothing was working, and Nigel was finally fed up, and he, he yelled at the bird, and the bird even got meaner and louder. And then he shook the parrot, and the parrot got even angrier and ruder. And finally, in desperation, he grabbed the bird and he threw it in the freezer. And while it's in the freezer, it's squawking, it's kicking at the door, it's screaming, and then suddenly, absolute silence. Not a peep was heard over a minute. Nigel began to get a little worried, and so he thought he'd open up the freezer door, and as he did, the parrot slowly, carefully walked out on his arm and onto his shoulder, and then said this, quote, the parrot said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Nigel was shocked. I mean, the change in the bird's attitude, and as he was about to ask the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued, may I ask what the turkey did? When death is on the line, things change, don't they? And that's what happens in 2 Peter chapter 3. Death is on the line. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 when Peter lists the attacks of the false teachers that they're making against the second coming of Jesus Christ. He basically wanted to respond, and he responded with graciousness but firmness. Sometimes when you're dealing with error, you really don't know who you're dealing with. Is that a make-believer? Is that a... Uh, almost believer, is it a misled believer, mistaught believer, or is it actually a false teacher and someone who's trying to do damage to the church? You know, it's almost as if trying to correct false behavior in the context of the church is like you and I standing in the midst of a dust devil. You ever done that? Where it spins around you and swirls you around, or if you've ever resisted a hundred mile an hour wind, you know how difficult that is. Well, that's what it's like to stand up against apostasy in our day. It really is true. It's very very difficult in the church. There's deception, there's lies, there's rejecting the truth, there's tolerating error, there's uh, making the, ch- uh, the gospel cheap, swirling all around you. And in Second Peter chapter 3, what's happening is they're maligning, they're messing with, they're distorting or even denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. So why do false teachers and those mockers fight the truth of Christ's return? Because they don't want to be judged. They don't want to give an account. They make up reason after reason, lie after lie, argument after argument to cover the truth. You say, what do you mean cover the truth? The Bible talks about when you talk to a non-Christian, they're often suppressing the truth. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who, listen, suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. They push down the truth. They deny the truth. They reject the truth. They push it down. And these liars that are hurting these churches in ancient Asia, now modern day Turkey, are pushing the church down. They're pushing the truth down. They're suppressing the truth of Christ's return. And to stand against this error, Peter wants you to be firm. Be firm in your belief and your daily remembering and diligent to reject these lies and embrace the truth of Christ's second coming. Students, what are you going to do when teachers throw science in your face and belittling your belief that Christ is God who will rule this planet? Ladies, when you're overwhelmed with the dangers that now raising children you face in this generation, are you truly confident that Christ will bring justice, that Christ will keep you safe in that realm? And men, are you able to answer the mocker's attack with a clear gospel explaining any challenge to Christ? That's where we're at. In explaining these verses, I want you to see where Peter is going. I want you to see some of the commands that are coming. As you look in this text, he calls his beloved Christians, brothers and sisters, to be, verse 14, diligent. You see that there? The command to be diligent. And then verse 15, to consider all the Scripture, not just some of it, but all of it, which we'll look at very soon. Verse 17, guard against these frauds, these ones who are messing up the view of the second coming, the correct view, the biblical view. And verse 18, to grow in Christ. I want you to become more like Christ in the midst of this test that is being pressed against you. And last week, verses 1 and 2 convinced us that Christ was coming because basically last week was number one in your outline, the return of Christ is certain. It's absolutely certain. And the proof of the return of Christ is based upon God's authoritative word. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 and see what he says here. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter basically says here, wake up! And remember, remember that your Bible, the Holy Prophets in the Old Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself in the Gospels, and the Apostles in the New Testament have written about the second coming of Christ over and over and over and over again. And we looked at that last week. It is everywhere in your Bible. In fact, it is so prevalent in your Bible that if you reject the second coming of Christ, then throw your Bible away. Because everything in the Word here, both Old and New Testaments, is saturated with the promise that God is going to return as Lord, as King, to judge the entire world. It's everywhere in your Bible. The return of Christ will change the entire planet. It will expose every person for who they really are. His return is certain. It's guaranteed by hundreds, not tens, not fifties, hundreds of promises and God's never-errant Word and Peter is basically saying, look, you know, churches in Asia, look, FBC, are you going to take these false teachers, their word, or are you going to take God's word? That's the point. Let me make a sub-point here. Number one issue in parenting, number one issue, is that the word of God becomes your children's authority. The word of God becomes their authority. That's what you want. You want them leaving your home with this book to be their life guide. Everything they determine will come from this book. Everything. And that's what's happening here. It's very simple. 
Peter's going, listen, stop listening to these guys and start listening and responding to the written word of God. Because it's everywhere that Christ is going to return, that Christ is going to judge. And the Bible says he is coming again. Amen? It is certain. And therefore, what are the false teachers? How do they respond? Look at verses 3 and 4. Number 2 in your outline, the return of Christ is combated. They fight it. They're going to fight it today. And these false teachers infecting the church as modern-day Turkey here did all they could. They, they, they thought and fought to undermine the truth of the second coming and did so for one reason. They do not want to be held accountable to God. It's simply, if Christ returns, they have to give an answer for how they lived. Every single motive will be brought to light. Every single thought will be brought to light. Every single behavior will be brought to light when you face Jesus Christ. That is true. But if Christ isn't coming back, then they've got no one to answer to, so they can live any way they like. And therefore, they don't have to think. They think in their hearts. They don't have to face judgment or answer for their sins. But friends, listen. This is so simple. Not wanting judgment doesn't make judgment disappear. Right? And not teaching against God's judgment does not alter God's holy character, which guarantees judgment. It does. So Christ's return is certain and judgment is coming. Judgment. Every single one of us will face judgment. Now, that is not commonly heard today in church. In fact, we have whole churches that never talk about judgment, and they never talk about sin. Uh, we, we just learned this on a tour of churches, and uh, let me tell you, let me be pointed, today it's very fashionable in megachurches to teach you basically nothing on sin, nothing on judgment, but basically three topics of interest. These are the topics that they teach over and over and over again to bring in the crowd so they can be a megachurch, and those topics are marriage, parenting, and sex. This approach is to get people to come to Christ, to try to show them that God's Word has some helpful principles so that they might consider asking Jesus into their heart. Listen, you need to understand the Bible's approach to ministry and church is totally different. Totally different. Understand, the Bible says you're in trouble with God because of your what? Your sin. It is your sin that has messed up your marriage, your parenting, and your intimacy. It is your sin. And because you've rebelled, God will judge each of you for your sin eternally unless you submit to Jesus Christ. And when you turn to Christ, you know Christ as God who has become uh, born as a man, who took the punishment you deserve for your sins on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. And when you believe out of love for you, out of kindness for you, out of mercy for you, that Christ became your substitute and died in your place, and then you turn to Christ in repentance from your sin and depend on Him by faith, then and only then will He actually enable you to live according to His Word. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, He can make you into a better spouse, a better parent, and a better partner. This is why Bible-teaching churches are not often mega-churches. By teaching God's Word as it is written, determining the author's intended meaning, you will not always feel good. You will not always be comfortable. You will not always have your self-image improved. You will not always have your heart be moved emotionally, but you will know the truth. You'll know the truth. The truth even of God's judgment. Judgment isn't fun, but it's true. And the only way you'll survive His judgment is for your sin to fall on Christ on the cross and His righteousness to cover you, for you to be justified. 
That's the only way you're going to be right with God. The only way you'll see lasting change in your marriage, your parenting, or your sex life is to be born again and then, by the Word of God, have the Spirit of God work through you to transform you. Not your partner. Not your kids. You. Change you. Sinful man will invent any possible excuse so they don't have to submit to the one true God and they will suppress the truth they intrinsically know. You understand, John 16 says the Spirit of God makes them know that judgment is coming. They know it, even though they will suppress it. And to suppress that reality, the false teachers in Peter's day came up with three arguments against the second coming of Christ. Three approaches that are still used today. Can you spot them as we read verses 3 and 4? Take a look at verses 3 and 4 now in your Bible. Hopefully you have one. It says this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying this, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it just was from the beginning of creation. Verse 3 is basically a first line of defense. Peter exhorts the readers, know this first of all. And that's not a a marking of chronology, it's a marking of priority. The word actually refers to priority, and he's basically giving us two priority truths here. The first priority truth is, most important, first of all, translated, it could be translated, know this especially, Christians must guard against these errors, these frauds. Secondly, Peter teaches his beloved believers to constantly be aware that we're living in the last days, meaning that Christ is coming soon, so live every day as if it's your last. See, he says, verse 3, look at it, know this first of all. Most importantly, priority. One, watch out and understand your enemy's tactics. And two, keep your heart focused continually on his return at any moment. That's what he's saying. And Peter's challenging the churches to know your enemy, kind of like scouting the other team in a sporting event. You kind of know how they function. He says, I want you to know these heretics, how they work, and the tactics that they use. And what three arguments do they use? Now, listen. They cannot destroy a believer. They can discourage you. They can cause you to doubt. They can cause you to delay. But they cannot destroy you. But they can destroy the almost believer the one who's not quite a believer yet. And so therefore, what tactics did they use to destroy the almost believer and to cause doubt in the genuine believer over the return of Christ? Three things. One, intense intimidation. Two, flaunting their freedoms by living by lust. And three, causing reasonable doubt or scientific skepticism. In order to repress the truth about coming judgment, these non-Christians, and by the way, this is broader than just what happened there. These are the social media darlings. These are the news reporters of our day, the college professors, the, the popular book writers, the seminary heretics. They use intimidation. They use their horrible moral example. And they use even arguments from science to dismiss the return of Christ. To create a belief system that allow them to think that they're not going to have to face judgment. That's their point. These very attacks bombard you and I today, so beware. Get prepared to meet the opposition. Dismantle their arguments, so let's look at all three of them. First in your outline, they attack with intense intimidation. Intense intimidation. 
It's basically they're saying, you're an idiot if you believe the second coming of Christ. Or what's wrong with you? You're silly to hope that Jesus Christ is physically going to return and, and rule this planet. And that's what Peter means in verse 3, verse, uh, verse, first part of it. It says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You see that there? In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. The false teacher laughingly sneers at the truth that Christ is going to come to judge. You say, how do you know that? Well, the verb there, will come, it says, in the last days, mockers will come. It informs you that you will be intimidated. It's going to happen. It's actually placed first in the Greek text and therefore emphasized, this is coming. This is going to happen. It's not only possible, but it's certain. And if you believe in the return of Christ, you're going to be laughed at. It comes with being a believer. Jesus even promised us in the Beatitudes, we would be persecuted. The mockers come in the Old Testament. The mockers came against Christ. Christ warned the disciples that mockers would come. And now Peter says mockers are going to vilify you even in the church sometimes. Without question, the early church believed that Christ was coming soon. The early church, the first century church. It's imminent. The apostle Paul even thought that it might happen in his lifetime. In fact, we know the Thessalonians were so convinced that Christ was coming back soon, they stopped working. What a great answer. And as time wore on, the mockers used Christ's apparent delay to intensify their intimidation. And that's why Peter affirms verse 1, mockers will be present during the entire, look at verse 3, the entire last days. You say, I thought days was days. No, and here, the last days is the entire time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Are we in the last days right now, yes or no? Yes, we are. And all throughout that long period, which intensifies at the end, mockers are going to come. And they're going to seek to undermine the Christian confidence in Christ's return. And we've all experienced it in some level. The passage of time can really threaten a Christian's sense of expediency. That's how come we sometimes roll through a whole week and we haven't thought about Christ returning. Some Christians that Peter writes here were beginning to doubt that if Jesus was coming back at all, they began to doubt it. They were struggling. Their hope was not as certain as when they first believed. And those pesky false teachers were quick to captivate on those fears. They were planting seeds of doubt. And they were actually nurturing what I like to call apocalyptic anxiety. They were causing them to really fear what's really going to happen. So verse 3, it says, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. That's scoffing scoffers or scornering scorners. It, it's just a, a double usage here. That, now that word mocker is only used here in, in Jude 18. And it basically refers to individuals who treat that which ought to be taken seriously lightly. It's like somebody joking about hell. And the false teachers try to intimidate God's people through mocking, which is, and you write this down, mocking means sarcastic ridicule. Sarcastic ridicule. No second coming. What's wrong with you? And Peter emphasizes their mocking by listing the term twice here. Mockers will come and they're mocking. You say, what is he saying there? This is really simple. Don't lose sight of it. If you believe that Christ is coming back, they're going to mock that belief. But they're going to do something more. That's why mockers and mocking is used twice. He's also not going to just mock your belief in that. They're going to mock you. They're going to mock you. So not just your belief, but who you are. Who you are. 
And they're going to try to make you feel laughable, absurd, uninformed. That's mocking. Why do they mock again? Because they're guilty. They're repressing the truth. They don't want to repent. They mock because this is their way of suppressing the truth. They intrinsically know. What do they know? You know what they know? Intrinsically. They know that they're going to die and they're going to face their Creator in judgment. They know that. That's intrinsic. The Holy Spirit promised that. Jesus promised that in John 16. It's going to happen. And and when Christ judges them, they already know they're going to be found guilty. So they're going to repress that truth any way they can, believe anything they can, so they don't have to face that reality, which is an internal reality. They intimidate you for your correct beliefs because they want to continue living incorrectly in their sins. One more time. They intimidate you for your correct beliefs because they want to continue living incorrectly in their sins. If your lifestyle contradicts the Word of God, then you must either change your lifestyle or change the Word of God. The apostates then determine they're not going to change their lifestyle. They're going to alter the Word of God. So they mock you and believe, try to make you believe because they're trying to make themselves believe that there is no judgment and Christ isn't coming and that hasn't been promised in the Word of God. And never forget, 2021 Christian, the more Christ offers himself through the gospel, the more he invites men and women and children and students to his kingdom, the more the ungodly will vehemently push back against your message and vomit poisonous words at you as the messenger. So it's not just the message you have, it's you, the messenger. They will mock as well. So what do we need? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says we need to grow in spirit-dependent confidence. He wants you to be certain. That was verses 1 and 2. And he actually wants you to grow in spirit-empowered courage. When you're in Christ and you're in the Spirit, you have courage. And today is not the day to decrease influence out over fear, but to increase in fervor for Christ. Not to decrease in fear, but to increase in fervor. We may laugh and be laughed at today, but they will not be laughing on that day. They may laugh today, but they won't be laughing on that day. They may seem to have the upper hand today, but they will not have the upper hand in eternity. Just as Christ came the first time, He will come again. This time, He will come to judge as the unveiled Son of God, and He will rule. He wins, He triumphs, He conquers, He rules as the sovereign King. And you are by His side, your family, you're in His house, you're by His side, under His protection, mockers or not. What are the mockers like? Well, in the second and third points, Peter exposes their lustful emotions and their devious minds. How do they attack the second coming? Secondly, they attack by flaunting their so-called freedoms. Secondly, in your outline, they attack by flaunting their so-called freedoms. Living by lust. Living by lust. The mockers try to prove from their lifestyle that they will not be judged by Christ. How? They live how they want to live to assert, look, I can live any way I like, and I'm not going to be judged. What they say is, look, I can live in lustful sin. Nothing happened to me now. Nothing's happened to me yesterday. Nothing happened to me tomorrow. So nothing's going to happen to me in the future. You get it? No, no, no consequence now, so there's no consequence in the future. Peter says it this way in verse 3. Look at it. Following after their own lusts. As a lifestyle, they live 
licentiously, promiscuously, lustfully. And this phrase actually connects them to the false teachers that were talked about in chapter 2. Take a look at verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, its strong lusts. Uh, they're, they're not going to admit it, but immorality is the real reason why they reject the second coming because they don't want to be judged. They don't want to have a given account for their lives. In fact, the word there when it says following after their own lust, you see that following after? That verb is a form that means to travel or to go, describing a, a course of conduct, catch this, or a ter- long-term behavior. Their long-term behavior is living by promiscuousness their lifestyle of the false is all about sensuality and they deny Christ's return because they hate the thought of divine retribution they want freedom to pursue their lustful pleasures and without any fear of future judgment the false teachers will even live immorally intentionally in your face to prove some things they don't want to be judged and they'll say see I've perverted and nothing has happened to me so nothing will happen to me in the future. And as society continues to reinforce that, that will even be stronger on their part. They'll commit adultery, divorce, remarry on a whim, get drunk, take drugs, exalt homosexuality, and worse, pursuing every desire of their lust, all the while still claiming to be Christians. You met somebody like that? They, they say they're a Christian, but they live in continual rebellious, defiant immorality? They want to think they still have salvation, but don't have to answer to God. So they, they don't want to admit they're headed to hell, so they have to create a scenario, false belief, where they can still sin, live in sin, live by lust, and still be called a Christian. And, and so they declare Christ isn't returning, they say. They say there will be no judgment. They say we're free under grace to live how we want. Well, listen, friends, God in His Word declares something totally different. You cannot make the Bible say what they say. It's actually the opposite. Christ is returning and every single one of us here will be judged. Will be judged. True believers embrace Christ's return and that they will give an account for their lives. You and I will give an account for our lives. You say, how do you know? Romans 14, 12. Look at it there in your outline. So then each one of us will give a what? An account to himself, of himself to God. Each one of us, each one of us, it would only be great to stop right now and just kind of go through the crowd and go, yes, you, yes, you, yes, you, yes, you, and especially Larry, okay? You know what I'm saying? We're all going to give an account of ourselves to God. And look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, get it again, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, as in our life right now, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christ will bestow awards based on our service to him. And believers know that Christ is going to x-ray us. X-ray our soul. He alone can do it. He knows every motive behind every action. Does he not? He does. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So therefore, any action that looked like it was service but it was done for your glory and it was done in your strength, he'll know. He'll recognize also that those things that were done for his glory in his strength by his spirit, he'll also know that as well. Those are the rewardable items and that's what he's going to do. He's going to disclose everything. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. Don't judge each other, especially 
trying to guess each other's heart, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, now watch this phrase, and disclose the what? Motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. True believers know and long to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. True believers know the Lord will expose their motives, evaluate their works. True believers are confident in their hope in Christ's return And it also gives them a massive incentive to live purely today. Because he could come any day. Any day. So, what does the Bible say? Well, look at 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet appeared. What we will be, what we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone, every Christian, who has this hope fixed on him, what? purifies himself just as he is pure. You're going to want to live purely from a pure heart that he gave you a heart. And unlike the mocker who lives in lust, true Christians know each one of us will give an account to God. So born-again Christians pursue purity, pursue holiness from a heart that wants to. It's not a big list of do's and don'ts that Christians follow if you're a non-Christian here today. You look at us, you go, oh, you bunch of Bible thumpers. No, it's not that at all. It's that when he saved us, He not just covered us in His righteousness, but He caused us internally to be born again, regenerated, gave us a new heart that actually wants to obey even when we fail to. We have a new heart that wants to please Him. We would want to walk in holiness. That would be a desire that He puts in our hearts. But that won't stop the mockers with coming up with excuses to reject Christ's coming. So number three in your outline, they attack by pushing reasonable doubt. They're pushing reasonable doubt. This is what they're doing. And it's pretty dramatic. And it's scientific skepticism. And this is what Peter means in verse 4. Take a look at it. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They say, science proves He's not coming. Or the laws of nature reject His return. How they say, the laws of nature are unchanging. Listen, The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The seasons transfer just as they always have. We go from summer to fall to winter to spring every year. It goes on and on and on. The tides go up, the tides go down in perfect order, exactly the same for thousands and they sometimes would say millions of years. Therefore, because it's been so consistent in the past, then it must be consistent in the future. Therefore, Christ actually entering into the world and changing this world and judging this world and creating a kingdom where He rules within a perfect environment and then sets up a brand new eternal state of both heaven and hell, brand new, can't happen. They deny it. Therefore, they say, we can expect constancy in the future. So any thought that Christ would judge the world, darken the sun or replace the sun, is ridiculous. And that's what the book of Revelation says. The sun gets dark, and at the end of all time, it's, uh, there's no need for the sun. It's replaced. This is the same heresy, by the way, verse 4, that you hear taught in the secular classroom on every nature show you watch, in every zoo you attend, in every museum you, you walk through. You hear the declaration that science proves the earth is constant, functioning millions of years ago exactly as it functions today. And they argue nothing cataclysmic happened in the past. Therefore, it's very simple to believe that nothing cataclysmic will happen in the future. Year to year, century to century, 
eon to eon. It's always been the same, uniform, consistent. What do they say? Verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Arrogantly, they deny the second coming. They repudiate the truth that everyone must give an account for their words and their deeds, that Christ will unfold even the motives of the heart. They scoff at Jesus' promise that he will return on the last day. So they ask contemptuously, verse 4, where is this promise coming? You put a little sarcastic face right by that verse because that's what they're asking. And the false teachers, they don't want you to believe that Christ has radically interrupted the normal sequence of events with a global worldwide flood. Did God change the world with the flood, yes or no? Absolutely, dramatically changed it. Or the sun standing still, or even more pointedly, God was born as a man. Talk about invading the regular constancy of history. God lived among us, veiled His deity, lived a perfect life, offered Himself for our sin on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. That is radical, correct? And yet they deny all of it. Calming a storm? Huh! Raising the dead? No way. The false teachers instruct that nothing has changed in the past, so nothing will change in the future. Verse 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You say, who are the fathers? This is the big debate with all the commentators. Who the fathers are? You know, And basically, well, it must be the early Christians, or it must be the, the fathers of the scoffers, You know, that they were believers and now the scoffers are unbelievers. And, and they, they speculate on all these things. Listen, how you interpret the Bible is pretty clear. Look at how he ties the word fathers into creation. You see it there, the connection? So there's a connection there. He's taken us all the way back. And then when you read all the usages of father in the New Testament, you'll find that the vast majority, if not all of them, are actually referring to the Old Testament fathers like Abraham, like Joseph, like David. And so that's the reference there. So what the actual false teachers, the mockers, are declaring is that everything remains the same since the day of creation. That's what they're asserting. They're declaring that the person and work of Christ has no validity. Equally, Christ has no bearing on the natural order of events or on everyday life. But true saints, those of you who are born again, know that that's not true. The coming of Christ changed everything. Did it not? God became a man. God made himself known, declared his rule, and provided salvation. Everything changed. And his return, as is promised, will bring the end of the old and the beginning of everything new. Everything new. Judgment will fall upon this earth. Judgment will fall upon every person who has ever lived. And Christ's physical rule over this earth and everyone on it will begin forever. Listen, everything doesn't continue as it was from the beginning of creation. It is not a closed naturalistic system of cause and effect, but an open system where God ordains, yes, even the uniform operation of natural causes but also a universe where he intervenes. Does God intervene in history, yes or no? Yes, he does. In fact, Christ did quietly enter into history at the beginning of his first coming. He quietly entered. He veiled his glory. He walked among us, but also it says in the Scripture, and Christ declares that over and over he promises he will return triumphantly, unveiled in all His glory, dramatically to judge this rule uh, world and to rule with His second coming. 
this world and everyone in it will be rocked with the return of Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? It will. So take this home, if you would. Number one, you will be judged. You will be judged have you turned to the only substitute. You will be judged have you turned to the only substitute. Read with me aloud Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, right there in your notes. Hebrews 9, 27, let's read it together. It is appointed for men to die once. After this comes judgment. Let's say it again. It is appointed for men to die once. After this comes judgment. After this comes what? Judgment. Judgment's inevitable. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. You're going to be judged. Because all have sinned. But the only way to escape the harsh punishment that will come with judgment is for your judgment for sin to fall on someone else who would take your place. And that's the gospel. That's why it's good news. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. God did the work on your behalf out of love and grace and mercy. From a heart of love and from a heart of mercy, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took the agony of the eternity in hell upon himself on the cross for your sin. The wages of sin is what? And Christ died for you. And then he rose, and then he ascended to heaven, and now he can not only forgive you, he can make you new, he can wash you clean, he can give you a new start. Were you a do-over? And with a whole new life, he can cover you with his perfect righteousness, justifying you, so you can be right with God now and live with God forever in heaven, and he can change you internally so you'd want to please him and know him and love him and walk with him and no joy in the midst of sorrow. No peace in the midst of chaos. But that will only come through Christ. But if your sins don't fall on Jesus Christ now, then you will be judged. And later, the punishment for that will be eternal torment in hell. You're not with your friends in hell. You're not with your mates. You're not with your buddies. It's torment. 24-7 for eternity. So what you want to do is cry out to Christ. You want to cry out to Christ to open your heart. He has to do it. Because we're dead in our sins, He's got to crack your hard heart, give you a soft heart so you can turn from your sin in repentance and you can depend on Him by faith and follow Him. And He'll make that possible because of what He does in salvation. You need to cry out to Him, though, change my heart, change my life, forgive my sin, cleanse me. I come to you as a beggar. I offer you nothing. I've got nothing to offer you except this broken body and this life of sin. Number two, are you accountable for how you live? Are you serving Christ? Are you accountable for how you live? Are you serving Christ? Romans 14, 12, we've looked at it twice now. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us. You will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, unless you're serving. You were saved to serve in the church and share in the world, and God will evaluate your life, every motive, every action, in the power of the Spirit. Was it done for His glory? What service are you going to show Him? What, what giving are you going to send ahead? What people are you going to impact for His glory? We're made to serve. Number three, you're God's child. Are you longing for His return? Are you longing for His return? 
You know, in Matthew 25, it describes the, the story of the ten virgins awaiting the return of their, gro- their groom, and some were ready and some were not. And in the same chapter, it, it, it describes a master giving his servants money to invest while he's away. So our master is away right now. Are you investing your gifts and your talents and your time and your money for his purposes while he's away? Are you readying yourself for his soon, quick, unannounced return? Because that's a way of life and a way of living. Living for Christ's return and readying yourself is a way of living, a a walk of obedience. It's a life of dedication. Our worship is not singing songs. Our worship is saying, my life is yours. And if you've missed that point, you've missed worship. We've gathered again to reaffirm that He is worthy of everything and He is worthy of all of us. Can I hear an amen to that? We give you all in, Lord. It's imperfect. We fail often, but we're all in. Because you were all in with us. You gave us everything. And it's also demonstrated when you long for His return, it's demonstrated with affection. Now, many of you know that I have three grandsons and two of them are in Hawaii. And the name for granddad, the name for grandpa in Hawaii is the word cuckoo. And I know, many people have said that is so fitting. Uh, That is so fitting of you, Chris. Well, it wasn't this last trip, but one before that. My second born grandson, we got a little video, and after we had left, and he's sitting by the screen door, his little cross leg, and he's looking out, and he's kind of sniffling and crying. And mommy says, to him, what, what, what are you doing, Finn? And he says, I'm waiting for Cuckoo to return. I don't want you waiting at the screen door. We're not meant to do that, but we were meant to anticipate his return, right? We were meant to anticipate and long for his return. Say it, live it. Listen, we were meant to long for him out of great love for him. Not because of what He does for us, but because we now get to be with our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Long for Him, out of love for Him. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You that it speaks to us and directs us. We pray, Father, that You would work in us to accomplish Your purposes. We pray that this morning, that if there anybody whose heart is hard or is unsaved, that you would begin that process of drawing them to yourself. Only you can do it. And for the rest of us, might we live in anticipation of your return. Might we live in a way where we're longing to stand firm and, and, and resist those mocking statements. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We pray that we might be those people who really anticipate your return every single day. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.